All right, good morning. My name is Brandon. If I've not had the chance to meet you, I serve as lead pastor here at Summit Midtown. We are so honored to have you this morning as we gather and, uh, and listen to God together and worship God together and respond to what God's doing among us and encounter him uh, as a people. Um, it's a, it is a privilege to be here together. And so I um, want to kind of set up our next movement of our worship, which is teaching um, and, and listening. And so uh, oftentimes in this space, uh, one of our elders will teach. We distinguish here, if you're new to Soma, kind of how we do teaching and preaching between what we call big T teaching, which is kind of the the doctrine of the church. As elders, we are responsible uh, and accountable to God for our kind of doctrinal fidelity and orthodoxy. And so that is manifested through our statement of faith. And so it's our job as elders to um, oftentimes to, to teach here on Sundays but also to make sure that the teachers of our church are teaching in alignment uh, with, with that statement of faith and with, uh, with scripture. Um, oftentimes though, we get the, the privilege to open up space here. So what we're doing here uh, also can be what we call little t teaching. And so Colossians, we're to teach one another. God has gifted the body, all kinds of different men and women who are not elders to also teach one another, to encourage one another, to open up scripture, to study and prepare and pray and explain and apply to our lives. And, and that enables us to experience a wide range of diverse voices and giftings uh, here as a body and perspectives that we need uh, to, to really see the fullness of God in his kingdom. And so um, sometimes that is somebody in our church, a deacon or whatever, sometimes as this morning, it is uh, a friend of ours. And so many of you know Hannah Anderson. Hannah's been here and, and uh, preached and taught quite a bit. Hannah is a, is a personal friend to Emily and I, has been such an encouragement. Her and her husband, Nathan, are uh, just wonderful people. They've been serving in ministry a long time. She's a theologian, an author, uh, and uh, just most importantly, she loves Jesus. And I'm so thankful for her uh, example of faith as we've watched her live that out with her children. Uh, they live in Virginia. And since she was at this last time, actually, has uh, started school at Duke. And so we're so excited for this new season for Hannah uh, to be able to go back to school uh, as she continues uh, responding to the call that God has on her. So She'll come in just a moment um, and, and lead us uh, in our teaching time. And to that end, I want to invite you to turn to Jeremiah, uh, excuse me, to Lamentations, right after Jeremiah. And our scripture reading this morning will be from Lamentations. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon from Lamentations. It is quite a book, very dark. Uh, that's why it's called Lamentations. Um, so we are uh, continuing our series, Seeking God Together. Uh, seeking the beautiful God here, and we're looking at these different characters and different communities that, uh, that teach us, give us an example of what it looks like to seek God in the midst of uh, the difficulties of life. And so, Lamentations chapter 3, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 26. Hear these words. It's on page 729 if you have a red Bible. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven me away and forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. Yes, he repeatedly turns his hand against me all day long. He has worn away my flesh and skin. He has broken my bones. He has laid siege against me, encircling me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have been dead for ages. He has walled me in so I cannot get out. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I cry out and plead for help, he blocks out my prayer. He has walled in my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. 
He is a bear waiting in ambush, a lion in hiding. He forced me off my way and tore me to pieces. He left me desolate. He strung his bow and set me as the target for his arrow. He pierced my kidneys with shafts from his quiver. I'm a laughingstock to all my people, mocked by their songs all day long. He filled me with bitterness, satiated me with wormwood. He ground my teeth with gravel and made me cower in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. Then I thought, my future is lost, as well as my hope in the Lord, from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Let's just take a moment to set our stuff down. Let's create space to listen to the Spirit and what God wants to say to us this morning. So we'll just take a quick moment of silence. Let's just get into our bodies. Let's ground ourselves in the, in the reality that God is present to us right now. He's with us and for us in Jesus by his Spirit. So let's take a deep breath in and let's breathe in from our diaphragm to the crown of our head and out through our toes, the goodness and the mercy and the love of Jesus for us this morning. And let's breathe out all of our cares and concerns and worries. Let's be quiet and wait on the Lord together for just a moment. I'll pray. Our Father who fills the heavens, we want to declare this morning with this community of exiles, with the prophet Jeremiah, that you are good to those who wait for you, to those who seek you. And so God, would you help us to wait quietly for salvation from you? Would you teach us what it looks like to live in the tension of a broken world while waiting to discern and experience the goodness that you've promised to us and that has been brought near to us in Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, come now. Speak to our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome Hannah as she comes to lead us in our teaching time. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I was thinking about... You know, when, when you um, 
come to a place often, you start, you initially start to think, oh, this is the third time I've been here. This is, a, I don't know what time this is that I've been here. So I'm going to take that as proof that we're old friends and that we're all family now, and it is good to be back with you. Um, when Brandon invited me to come this weekend, he told me about the series he was feeling led to present this fall, um, Seeking God and Working Through the Old Testament. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's really good. I really like that. And he said, and I'd like you to potentially um, speak on God is good. I'm like, absolutely. I got that one in my back pocket. I wrote a book called All That's Good, kind of thinking about the ways we can see God's goodness in the world and train our minds. And so I said to him, okay, this is what I'm thinking. Genesis 1, a little bit of goodness of God in creation, a little bit of Psalms. I would have despaired if I'd not seen the goodness of God in the land of the living. Bumped to the Philippians. We're looking at the goodness of God and all these different ways of um, what is good, pure, true, excellent. And he's like, well, so actually I was thinking of Lamentations. Lamentations 3. And I was like, okay, okay, we can go with that. And the truth is that this is a much wiser way to enter a conversation about God as good and seeking the God who is good because it is really too easy for me to stand up here and just tell you God is good, go find his goodness in the world. And it's too easy to do that because you know that life isn't good. It would be too easy for me to stand up here and just invite you to seek the God who is good when your father was diagnosed with cancer this week. Or maybe you just found out that you're not going to have a job by the end of the year. Or maybe you're reading the headlines of all the world newspapers and you know that we live in a world that is unjust and unstable and the people who are supposed to be in charge either are too distant from our problems or they're irresponsible. So if I came in and I tried to tell you, go find the good God in this world, the first thing that would happen is you would encounter the ways, all the ways that the world is not good. You would also very quickly encounter all the ways that you yourself are not good. And so it would be far too easy and, and probably a little dishonest. Um, if I'm going to tell the truth, a little dishonest to just appeal to you to believe and trust me that God is good when many, many things in your experience are saying, okay, but if God is good, why is my life so bad? Why are so many things around me so bad? Or even this, if I were to tell you to trust in God's goodness when maybe you're even suffering under the weight of your own lack of goodness, your own brokenness the way we make choices that we don't want to make and create a mess of our lives and can't find our way out, how can we proclaim and believe that God is good when this is the reality that we exist in? And so I think the access point for us today must begin with truth-telling. It must begin where Lamentations begins, which is pouring out lament, to tell the truth first about what we experience 
before we can enter into that invitation to see God's goodness in it. And so coming back to Lamentations 3, um, I want to just give you a little background on, on the book, give it a little context, because that narrative is very important to understanding what you just heard read. So Lamentations 3 is, as the title suggests, a lament. Um, and Miles had us sing a lament this morning. And a lament is a poem or a song that expresses sorrow or grief or pain or confusion about the state of our lives. And, and they are very honest. They say what we experience and what we feel. And you'll see this a lot. You might recognize similar forms of lament in the Psalms. And if you just recall for a moment what you heard read, you heard these things that quite frankly sound heretical. Basically, the speaker is saying, God is out to get me. At least that's the way it feels in my life. He has blocked me in. He has shoved me down. He has targeted me. He literally says he has targeted me with his bow. He's coming after me. I'm down in the dust with my face in the dust. That's how I'm experiencing my life right now, and that's how I'm experiencing God. And so a lament gives us the freedom and the invitation to say the truth about what we're experiencing within a broken world. Now, the book of Lamentations is made up of five different laments, five different separate poems or songs that have been compiled. And we're looking at the third one, the third chapter, the third, the third lament, the third song. Now, we um, traditionally understand this is Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who is voicing these laments. And he is voicing them in context of a historical event when the Babylonian kingdom had come against the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, if you remember just briefly your history of Israel, right, just assuming you all are ancient Near Eastern scholars here for a minute, after Solomon's reign in Israel, um, the kingdom was divided so that there was a northern kingdom that eventually fell to the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah outlasted and eventually fell to the Babylonians. But before it did, God appointed prophets to the different kingdoms to call them back to lives that aligned with his goodness. And so um, he called Jeremiah to this work of telling Judah that destruction was coming. Um, it had not come yet, but the work of Jeremiah was to tell the people to get ready for it. And that's why Lamentations in our Bible is right behind Jeremiah. They're paired together. If you're going in, in order, you hit these prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and there's, an, a, there's a logic to grouping them together, but Lamentations actually has more, in terms of genre, has more to do with the Psalms. You would think it would be grouped there, but we group it with Jeremiah because these are the words that Jeremiah is voicing in the midst of the siege of Babylon. And so this is, he's in the middle of being surrounded um, by this enemy army. He's in Jerusalem suffering under this siege. I suppose if you want to take it to a modern context, it would be like one of the cities besieged in Ukraine right now. If you were in the middle of that, under constant attack from outside enemies, this is what you would give voice to. 
But what's interesting is that these words, these laments, come after several years of decades even of Jeremiah's ministry, his prophetic ministry. Because he had been called to warn the people of Jerusalem and Judah that Babylon was coming, that they were coming in judgment and God was sending them. And he was even calling them, his, his prophetic word was to prepare for it by receiving it. They were to prepare for God's judgment by embracing it, letting the Babylonians come, not resisting them. And one of the strange things about Jeremiah's prophecy is he said, those of you who embrace it and are, being, are willing to be carried off into exile, you are the ones who will survive. And God will care for you in that exile and in that hardship. But those of you who resist it or fight back or say it's not coming are the ones who are going to be crushed. Because Jeremiah was not the only prophet speaking to the people of Judah. There were also false prophets who came with different messages. And if you get into the book of Jeremiah, you'll see him speaking to these false prophets. And one of the ways that you know it's a false prophet is because they downplayed suffering. Jeremiah comes with a truthful message about the brokenness and the suffering and the evil that is going to come upon them. And the false prophets come with a superficial message. And they, they hold, as Jeremiah 8.11 puts it, they hold the brokenness superficially. They have treated the brokenness of my dear people superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Or Jeremiah 23 speaks, he says, don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are deluding you. And one of the ways you know that they're deluding you is because they are saying, you will have peace. No harm will come to you. And it's striking because the difference between the prophet sent from the Lord is the one who tells the truth about the brokenness, that tells the truth about what they are going to be suffered, what they're going to suffer. And those who are not sent from the Lord want to downplay minimize and just gloss over the fact that anything is happening. And this is the larger backdrop of Lamentations. Leaders intent on denying reality and people very willing to go along with that, to deny the difficulty of their situation, confident that it's not as bad as Jeremiah says it is, that somehow with enough gumption and willpower and um, stamina, they can overcome what is coming, that they can have the good life as they've known it, that nothing has to change. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's very easy for us just to come to these conversations and want to speak of goodness, to, to, to think, to rush directly to, well, God is good, and we can rest in him, and we can trust in him. And if we're not careful, that can be a way to minimize suffering. And we are tempted to do this. We're tempted to just very quickly say, well, 
it will all work out, right? Or there's always a silver lining to every cloud. Or my favorite, it could be worse. Yeah, why don't you tell me how it could be worse? I know it could be worse, but this is bad. So that kind of presents a question of why do we do this? Why do we minimize the suffering, the brokenness that we know we're experiencing? Why do we deny it? Well, I think that the book of Jeremiah gives us a few suggestions. Um, one, we find in Jeremiah 6.13, that especially for the false prophets, sometimes we're benefiting from the status quo. And questioning that, or questioning the facade that everything's good, would disrupt and destabilize what we're benefiting from. This is what Jeremiah says in 6.13. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is making profit dishonestly. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace when there is no peace. And at least in this text, we see one possible motivation for proclaiming peace, peace, and just minimizing suffering is because we're benefiting from that message, or we sit at the top of the pile. So why would we uncover the difficulties and brokenness of the very system that we are entrenched in? I think this is probably why we sometimes resist hearing bad things even about our own history, or our own nation, or our own city. It disrupts the status quo, but it also disrupts our sense of who we are. It disrupts the narratives that we have crafted about our own prosperity, about why we enjoy the lives we enjoy. It also forces us to face our complicity. It forces us to recognize that we aren't the people we think we are. And so at least for the false prophets in Jeremiah's day, there was a vested interest in keeping the narrative that everything is okay going. But I think there's also another possible reason why we do this that's, that's hinted at in Jeremiah as well. And I think that's a level of emotional self-preservation. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And he is the weeping prophet because God gave him a message of sorrow and suffering and sent him to a people who didn't want to hear it. And he is called to the difficult labor of bearing and entering into his people's suffering even while they are denying it. And so he comes, and in places like Lamentations 3, his vocation, his calling is to be honest, emotionally honest, committed to telling the truth about how things really are. And that is very, very hard work. You see, our own suffering comes upon us, and there's not much way that we can choose for it to come or not to come often. And we, don't, we can choose how we respond to it. But it's a completely different thing to choose to enter into other people's suffering. To be called to pick up that weight and carry and bear that burden with them. And this is essentially what Jeremiah is called to. He is called to a life of deep suffering, of rejection, 
and even imprisonment, and eventually death. And that doesn't sound like a good time to me at all. And so when we hear of suffering, our mind very quickly wants to minimize it. We very quickly want to assure other people that it'll be all all right, that there will be good that will come from this, there will be a silver lining, because of what it requires from us to enter into that depth of suffering. But I think, and what I would like to focus on for the rest of our time together, I think one of the reasons that we minimize suffering and we can't tell the truth about it is because our understanding of God can't handle it. Our theology can't handle it. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not that God can't handle it. It's not that God can't hear our honesty. It's not that God can't hear our lament. And one reason we know that is because the scripture contains passages like Lamentations 3, where Jeremiah is essentially accusing God of targeting him. But this is within the scripture. So God has a comfort level with reality that we don't. But for us... The challenge to our, theo our, our theology is essentially what philo philosophers call the question of theodicy. If God is good and powerful, why do bad things happen? How can I believe in a good God when life looks like this? So if I want to believe in a good God, I have to deny that life looks like this. That's how I reconcile it. That's all I can do within myself. And so even as we try to minimize and escape the brokenness and not tell the truth about it, whether it's because it's benefiting us, because we don't want to enter into the emotional labor of it, or simply because we don't know how to reconcile it within our limited understanding of God. The question of life in a broken earth is a question that the scripture foregrounds from the very beginning. From the very first pages of Genesis, we have this expression of a broken world. Now, if you go back, you'll remember Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world as good, as a manifestation of his own goodness. He blesses and affirms it, and he gives human beings this beautiful world to exist in, full of companionship, work, identity, in a blessed garden of perfection. But... It only takes us two chapters to get to Genesis 3. And basically what Genesis is doing is setting up an explanation for why things are the way they are. Why does your life feel like this in the midst of a world where you can see glimpses of goodness, maybe, but for the most part it feels a lot more like Genesis 3 than Genesis 1 or 2. And so when we get to Genesis 3, if you remember the, the proclamation of the earth under the weight of sin, you see themes of alienation, themes of returning to the dust. You'll see language of working in the dust and eating your bread, your face in the dust. And then you see that the man and woman are banished into exile. They are sent out of the garden. And what's fascinating about Lamentations 3 and every other lament is you say, see these same themes. 
What we know to be true of our own lives are present within Genesis 3 and in Lamentations 3. Just look for a minute at the text. Verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. This is the judgment coming down. He has driven me away, driven me away from Eden. He has forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. Verse 9, he has walled in my ways. He's blocked me from the place that I want to be in. And if you remember Genesis of God putting the angel at the garden gate to block their way. Verses 16 and 17, he has ground my teeth with gravel and made me cower in the dust. Again, that picture of our our face down in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. And one of the features of the curse is that you will work and work and work and work, and your work won't produce prosperity. Verse 19 particularly hit me. Remember my affliction and my homelessness. Cast out of the garden, the man and the woman became homeless. And we see this same cry repeated in Genesis 4 when Cain is under the judgment of the Lord. He says, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. And so what we see in Lamentations 3 Genesis 3, Genesis 4, throughout the scope of Scripture is the cry of every human east of Eden. Lost in the wandering, broken world, lost in the mess of our lives, lost in the pain caused by others, and lost in the pain that we have caused each other. I told you that Lamentations is a question of theodicy this attempt to wrestle with, if God is good, why do bad things happen? But I want to also tell you that this is not a question to be answered. It may not even be a question that can be answered. It's a question that has to be lived. There is no theorizing, no philosophizing, no nice, easy answer to why, if God is good, do bad things happen. This is the question of the very lives we lead. It is an embodied question. It is the very question that Jesus himself embodied in the incarnation, when he entered the brokenness of his people and took on suffering and alienation. When he was called, in much the same way Jeremiah was called, to shoulder with empathy and connection to enter into the brokenness of others. And that's why as much as Lamentations is the cry of the garden, of those east of the garden, the cry of those being besieged in Jerusalem, the cries we hear from around the world today, it is also the cry of Jesus on the cross. When about three in the afternoon, he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Where are you, God? And that is the same cry that Jeremiah is expressing in Lamentations 3. Where are you? But as I read Lamentations 3, something about Jeremiah's honesty with the brokenness makes me want to listen to him further. Because he's been honest about the loss and the suffering and the pain, I'm also willing to hear him when he talks about hope. And so when we come to verse 21, he pauses and he turns ever so slightly and he says, yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. That word yet is important because it's not a denial of the previous stanzas. It's not a denial of reality. It's an augmentation of reality. Yet, there is something more than everything I just said. Everything I just said is true and it must be said, yet that's not the only thing to be said. Suffering is not the only reality. It is not the only real thing. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good for those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Now, I want to pause here for a moment, though, because I don't want to give you easy answers. I don't want to have presented the truth of what Jeremiah is expressing in Lamentations and say, so all that's real, but now just go look on the bright side of things. That's not what he's saying here. And we see it as we dig into what he's calling us, what he calls himself to do. And he calls us to wait, to wait for him, to wait quietly. Now, in English, this feels very passive, as if we are just waiting for the bus, or we're waiting for our kids to get ready, or we're passing time. But in the Hebrew, that's not what it means. The word wait is the word kava, and it's a word you find in the Psalms. I waited patiently on the Lord. I wait for the Lord. I wait, and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord. And recently, I came across the work of an Old Testament scholar, Ellen Davis, who is at Duke and who is doing a lot of translation work within the Psalms, the Old Testament. And she has brought up that the root of this word, kava, is kav, which is a straight line. Not just a line that's drawn um, 
on paper, but an actual, like a surveyor's line that's pulled tight so that it is straight uh, between two points. And you might think of it as a tightrope. And, and the reason it is straight is because it is pulled in tension. If it's not in tension, there's slack, right? It's not tight. So it's pulled tight. This, this is the noun form, a straight line, a line stretched taut between two points. And so Davis translates this idea of waiting patiently or waiting in hope is, I am tense with hope. I waited in tense expectation on the Lord. That's how she handles it in some other places. And what she suggests is that this call to wait patiently is a call to wait in hope and tension. And she inverts it and says, it's this kind of line. It is a line from the suffering and the brokenness of the world as we know it to God in heaven. It is a line between all that we hope is true and all that we know to be true, between our fears and our hopes, what we can see and what we can't see. And it is a line of prayer that is embodied sometimes even physically with the tension and the expectation you feel in those moments of suffering. And so when Jeremiah calls us to wait patiently on the Lord, he's not calling us to passivity. He's calling us to believe that it's in that tension that the goodness of God is revealed. We're taught that the goodness of God is revealed by the ends. Once you're saved, once you come back from exile, once you're relieved of your difficulty, once your life place, everything falls in place, once you're no longer suffering, then you can believe in the goodness of God. But what's being suggested here in this lament and in the Psalms and through this idea of tense hope is that the goodness of God is actually found in the process of waiting. The goodness of God is revealed in the seeking, in the longing. It is revealed in and through the call to hope. So what does this mean? It means that we don't try to escape the tension because it's in the tension that we find God. It's in the tension that you will discover God's goodness. It's in exile that you will know him to be the God that he says he is. Because this is exactly what Jeremiah tells those who believed his word and surrendered to the Babylonians and were carried off into exile. There were those, those in Judah who heard Jeremiah's call that the Babylonians were coming, that this was judgment, that they should give themselves and embrace what was coming. And those people were carried off and deported to Babylon. And the text even says in Jeremiah 29 that the Lord deported them there, that he actually carried them off there for their own safety. And as we think about what this means for us to live in this tension, to wait in tense expectation, to wait in hope, I think what God says to those who were carried off has meaning and significance for us as well. 
So in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is still in Israel under siege, and he's writing to the exiles in Babylon. And he tells them that the goodness of God will be revealed to them there in exile. And as we're asking this question, how is God's goodness seeking me? How is it going to be revealed to me in my own places of exile? I think the first thing we have to understand is that it's going to be revealed in very counterintuitive ways. It's not going to be revealed in the resolution or the flash and the bang. It might. God may give you kind, good gifts in your sojourn on this earth. But God's goodness is going to be revealed in much subtler, mundane ways. Listen to what Jeremiah tells the people in exile. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being, sometimes translated good. Pursue the good of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. And what God is calling those in exile to is an attunement and an attention to the good that he is already doing in their lives, even in exile. What's so striking about the good that he's doing is it's very mundane. It's very basic, and it would be very easy to overlook. And the truth is, I struggle with seeing the ways that God is working in my life because they are so subtle. I be the first to admit that I'm very deeply cynical. My husband, Nathan, we say is irrationally optimistic and I'm irrationally cynical. And together, when we have to make a decision, we, we figure out what the middle way of those two would be. You know, if, if you consider yourself a glass half full or glass half empty kind of person, you ask that question, I'm the one that says, you know, it's a form of privilege to have a glass in the first place. So I know that when I tell you to look for the goodness of God in the mundane, that I'm asking something that's very difficult for some of you. And it is a spiritual discipline of attention, of attending to the mundane ways that God is showing himself to be good. Things like paying attention to the goodness of being alive. These exiles in Babylon had survived when other citizens had not. Paying attention to the fact that God has given us life. Paying attention to the goodness of creation. Very explicitly talks about working with nature, planting your gardens, eating their produce. Now, I'm not calling you all to go be homesteaders, but there's an awareness that comes through creation about God's presence in the world and his active work that we see through the cycles and the sustained process of growth. Pay attention to creation. Pay attention to the goodness of the relationships in your life. Yes, I know they're fraught and they're difficult. But pay attention that you have people. 
Pay attention that there are some relationships in your life that are bringing forth life. And pay attention with memory. Remember the ways that he has carried you. And this is a theme all throughout the Old Testament. Calling the people to remember he's been faithful to you in the past. And so as you wait in this moment of tension, remember and hope that he's going to be faithful to you in the future again. And very quickly, that's where Jeremiah moves. Because after he calls those in exiles to this kind of attunement and attention to their mundane lives, he says this to them. He gives them the word of the Lord, and he says, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. This is God speaking here. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And so when we naturally ask the question of where are you, God? The invitation from God is come find me. I'm here. I'm at work. Attune your heart and your eyes to what I'm already doing. Seek me. Come. Call after me. Pray to me. I will listen and you will find me. Because in the end, the goodness that we long for, the goodness that the Lord is giving us, is the goodness of himself. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for texts like Lamentations that free us and invite us to say what we all know to be true, but we're too afraid to say. Thank you that the truth does not stop with suffering. Thank you for the yet. Yet we know these things about you. I pray that you will give us the courage and the resiliency to wait intense hope and expectation on you. But even as we are drawn tight in the suffering of our own lives, that that line would connect to heaven. And that in the tension and in the waiting and in the longing, your goodness would be revealed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.